0: I'm Yunit Levy of Channel 12 in Tel Aviv.
1: And I'm Jonathan Friedland of The Guardian in London.
0: And we are Unholy, two Jews on the News from Keshe Podcasts. Hi, Jonathan. Happy 2022.
1: We can't say Shanat al-va. we've talked about that already. Yes, but happy 2022 to you. A new year, new possibilities, new beginnings.
0: Yes, new year resolutions, which my resolutions basically don't get COVID. That's what I got, you know, for this year.
1: Yeah, and 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 I think it's true to say you have stuck faithfully to your resolution, right? You, I, I'm right about this. You haven't had it at no, all. No, not that I know
0: of. No. See,
1: now I haven't had it at all as well. I think that's less of a big deal in my case because I'm not kind of out and about in the world quite as much as you, are, because <laughs> you're anchoring the nightly news. You're, you've even in the middle of COVID. Plus plus plus. You had to go into a workplace with other people because of the Indeed. TV studio. I didn't have to do that.
0: Yes. So that I, 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 say, I think I meet about I don't know forty to fifty different people a day. Uh, I'm in a studio with um, my colleagues. Yeah, it is. It, and and I have three children coming from different you know kindergartens of schools. So I don't know. The, the statistic is quite uh, staggering, but I have yet to encounter it. As far as I know, of course. So, yeah,
1: I I think that there's some kind of superhuman antibody thing going on (laughs) with you there because that is amazing. You never really did the lockdown withdrawing from the world thing that everyone else did, and yet there you are. So, it's a kind of superpower. Um, Yeah, you you know,
0: you realize now after talking about this, next week I'm going to get COVID just because we had this conversation, right? I mean, it's pretty obvious. Of course,
1: our muzzle, you'll get it next week. Um, And it's your
0: fault, just so we know where the blame is. Yeah, that's you on know, me. you know, we are a Jewish podcast. We need to know who's the, who's the guilty party. Um, I know that I left you hanging last year, and I, I think that you are waiting anxiously, anxiously to hear from me uh, what the Hebrew word of the year is. Um, yes, this was you our may cliffhanger. Or may not... You tell me. <laughs> so I didn't tease it very well at the end of last episode. But every year at the end of December, the Academy of the Hebrew Language asks Israelis to pick their word of the year. By the way, it happens, it's a tradition at the end of December, because that is the birthday of Eliezer Ben Yehuda, who revived the Hebrew language. So this year, do you want to try and guess what the word of the year is?
1: Well, I was wondering if it was going to be some kind of COVID formulation, Omicron, Omicron, or you know some lateral flow
0: vaccine boost. The Hebrew word for booster, you know, etc. Well, et and there
1: is that kind of Hebrew thing where you just add atzia onto something <laughs> and to make it boost, you know, booster atzia or something. Um, um, so that's what I was wondering if it was going to be something like that. No, so, so it on, is. is it, it is.
0: It is related to COVID. Um, and by the way, booster in Hebrew is dachaf. I just want you to say because you were bad mathing our language. So no, the word is actually tirlul which is sort of a slang word uh, meaning something like bonkers, wackiness, lunacy, bananas, or bananas, as you would say it. Uh, it's really more of a slang word, but like sort of officially Israelis have chosen this to be their word of the year, basically saying al hell is breaking loose. It's pretty appropriate, I would say.
1: So that's a um, so general all-round, but not Balagan, right? We would distinguish Tirlul from balagan.
0: Balagan is a more traditional word. It's already in the language quite officially. Tirlul is a word that, I love this interlude into the Hebrew language, this is a word that, that is slang. The root exists, right? We have the word meturlar, which means crazy. That's been around for like 40 years. This is a newer version of, of that word.
1: And it's got a nice little echo, just the sound of it, with troll and trolling. Which is is that accidental? What's the or is no? A the actually, play the Academy
0: was very clear on saying that it does not have any connection to the word uh, "troll," but I'm you know it does. I, I admit that it does echo it just a little bit. So the, um, a detour within
1: a detour. Again, we are Jewish people, so we can do this. The yes. Academy in Israel plays the same protective role over Hebrew that, for example, the Academy Française plays protecting the French language from contamination from English? Does it, Is it as vigilant in protecting Hebrew?
0: It's it's extremely vigilant. And indeed, what it is doing is finding the Hebrew versions of words coming in from English. It's not, I think it's a, I don't want to say it's a lost cause, but it is something that they try to do. And And while doing this, they try and incorporate these kind of words that are slang, but still Hebrew, inside the language to make it, you know, a language that's still...
1: Right, because of running... My little joke before was that in a way there is this attempt sometimes to just hebraicize basically every English word. So it's partnerim in the coalition and it's high tech and start-up and all this business. Right, 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 right. That's why I'm saying it's
0: not a lost cause, but yeah.
1: No, no, I'm I'm, I'm all for it. I was going to um, give you a little offering of a new coinage anyway on me. There's no academy that has ruled on this term and then hailed it as a new word. I have just, in the last 48, 72 hours, found myself reading and using a, a coinage I had never used before, namely Jew Goblin, um, <laughs> which I hadn't expected to use. But thanks to John Stewart, um, former host of The Daily Show in the US, it has become part of the uh, conversation. you know everyone I'm sure uh, will know what this relates to it's the comments he made about the depiction of the goblin bankers in Gringotts uh, the bank vault or the big bank in the Harry Potter books and films and as an aside in his podcast he just mentioned that when he first saw the film he just thought all right Jew bankers the little goblin struck him as looking like Jewish caricatures and that then just ran as things are prone to do in the electronic age and on social media. It morphed into, you know, John Stewart accuses J.K. Rowling of anti Semitism. Uh, John Stewart has, has absolutely said he's not doing anything of the kind. He doesn't think that at all. But it has touched off this whole debate about so called Jew goblins. And various scholars of Norse mythology have been out there saying the notion actually of the goblin being associated with hoarding money predates anti-semitism and medieval anti-semitism people have come back said okay sure but why in the book even before it was a film in the very first book does um jk rowling describe these goblins as swarthy and clever um you know maybe you know was swarthiness part of the old norse mythology or is there a little weird anti-semitic echo there and then other people have come in and said um you know if you're thinking that when you read those words, then maybe you're the anti-Semite. Anyway, Jew Goblin has been a coinage that, as I say, I'd, in, in December 2021, I would not have predicted it. By January 2022, it's everywhere.
0: It's every, It's like the, you open Twitter app, you see Jew Goblin trending, you close Twitter, right? That's like their cue. Right. I don't want to deal with that anymore. Um, yeah. I think it, it, we hear this whole discussion. Um, the world is obviously not smarter in 2022. We just have to mention living in post-truth, whatever. We have to say that J.K. Rowling has been very, very clear against anti-Semitism, a very vocal voice uh, protecting the Jewish community. I think this needs to be said, even in this discussion of whether the movie or not, or the portrayal or not, seem to be in any way uh, anti-Semitic. Not only
1: am I delighted and keen to agree with you on exactly that point, I think it's, it's very relevant how the debate has played out because in a way, um, you know, it's a kind of borderline call about those words in the book and the film and everything. But, and I, you know, I don't know whether this played a part in John Stewart walking back the remarks and stressing mm-hmm. that he was not accusing her of it, but certainly in the way the debate has played out, there has been such a desire to give her the benefit of the doubt for exactly the reason you said, which is mm-hmm. in, particularly here in Britain, when there was this issue about anti-Semitism in the Labour Party, Uh, not many public figures actually wanted to join in. A lot had the same attitude you had to opening up Twitter and seeing Jew Goblin. They thought, you know, close that. Let me have nothing to do with it. Very few public figures took the risk of getting involved and saying anything. And she was one of them. And she was absolutely clear uh, standing by uh, Britain's Jewish community and Jews in general. And therefore people say, you know what? If there's even a weird thing in the film and we'd rather it wasn't there, I'm sure it wasn't her doing, and it's and there's no way this would have been uh, this you know this 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 is any kind of black mark against her because of her overall record uh, as being such a as you say friend and defend, and sort of valiant defender mm-hmm. of, of the Jewish community.
0: Uh, and here I also um, have to confess that I did not watch the films; I only read the books, and in the books, it didn't seem anti-Semitic to me. But enough of me being a nerd. Let's talk COVID. I think we should. No.
1: We always should.
0: Um, We always (laughs) should.
1: I mean, uh, you know, I think, um, as we've said, we've managed to somehow, uh, both of you and me have avoided it in terms of physically contracting it. But we have not avoided it journalistically. It has been the only thing uh, in our world, more or less, for the last, uh, well, I was going to say year. <laughs> not and, and, years. Not at all. And, you
0: know, this is a, a tsunami, right? I mean, we're really seeing the tsunami of Omicron, right? New cases off the charts. Israel has 16,000 cases a day. I know that does not impress you. In the UK, there are about 16,000 new cases in two hours. Um, so just to give you the kind of stats and the perspective, Israel has 840 daily new cases per million you guys in the UK are way off in 2, 2,700 new cases per million a day. United States somewhere in the middle. But it definitely means that we are in a different place than we were. Israel kind of shifting its pos- completely its policy and pivoting to a different strategy, saying we can't protect uh, everyone anymore. We're going to protect the vulnerable. If you get the vaccine, you're protected. Get vaccinated. That is basically what the prime minister told uh, Israeli citizens on Sunday.
1: I find this hugely interesting. As I've said many times before, Israel has extra salience in this argument because it was a sort of ahead of the curve at so many stages. Um, said it before, you know, the whole business about embracing the booster. It was Israel that went out ahead in front on that. And now it is the go-to sort of fix that world leaders say, you know, you hear Joe Biden all the time, get boosted, get boosted. That was the message from Israeli officials. Earlier and therefore, this if the, if what you're saying is the new policy, I think people around the world are going to pay attention to that, and also I think it may resonate with a lot of people. There is a rising fury um, and frustration, but I would say more fury uh, at the unvaccinated, and there's a sense that you know you've heard it from doctors on emergency wards in hospitals saying, all of my. You know, in ITU beds are now taken up by the unvaccinated. And I cannot mm-hmm. do my job because of these people who refuse to get the message. And that kind of more liberal, you know, everyone can do their way, This is voluntary and it's an opt-in system. That There is impatience with that attitude. And I've heard people here say, because we have this National Health Service here, you know, they we shouldn't f- pay for treatment of people who are unvaccinated. That's never going to become policy, but you hear it as an indication of the anger. And I wonder if that's going to become, you know, Israel will become a, country if, you know, the policy is pursued as it could be, whether Israel becomes a sort of model that people look to and say, you see, that's what we should be doing.
0: Remember at the beginning of the pandemic, we were talking about tracing and testing and also isolation. That is a thing of the past. And it's a little bit, look, it sounds a little bit like Israel has given up. And I think that's really important. When we talk a year into our podcast, our very first episode was called Vaccination. We're talking about, and you said this, right? Israel was the trailblazer with the vaccines, with the booster. Now it's saying, basically, it's it's abdicating its trailblazer status and saying, I can't do this anymore. I, if, with these numbers and with this rate of infection, I can't contain this disease anymore. And it's a little bit like Israel is giving up. Right, the policy is is sort of we don't have a policy, or maybe like if you know the famous Arabic idiom, right, Allah bab Allah, whatever will be will be. Um, we did Arabic for the first time on the podcast.
1: Right? Uh, yeah, I think it, it re- reveals a big gap. So, we should be doing more <laughs> of it. Um, but tell me, in practice, what this would mean? Because if you're saying abandoning that, does it mean that if somebody tests positive, they uh, and they're in school, say, or they're a student? They go to school the next day, and if you're vaccinated, don't worry about it. And if you're not, well, that's on you. And the the, the, the person who's tested positive will no longer have to isolate and withdraw from society.
0: The person who tests positive will have to withdraw, but the testing will no longer be the very accurate PCRs, but will be the much less accurate rapid home testing in which you have to trust that the parents are doing it and they're rightfully you know, reporting back to what they found. So this is basically saying a lot of people and a lot of children are going to get infected because we don't have enough testing to do and enough sort of infrastructure to do all of this. Uh, and okay, I, I think that is a bit of a problem.
1: Yeah, no, we're already here at the Pretty well the Home Testing, and I'm holding up onto the little Zoom camera here, my home test kit, just to show you tested negative just an hour or so ago.
0: I'm very glad since we're on Zoom. (laughs) Yeah, I know,
1: because it's not, yeah, it wasn't you I was particularly worried about infection in this case. (laughs) Although what with technology being uh, what it is, no, I, I, at that, that stage of the rapid testing and moving away from PCRs, policymakers are moving towards that elsewhere. What I wondered, though, was whether what you've been describing in Israel is a sort of um, first sign, a straw in the wind that is indicating that actually eventually we may move to a policy of, of, a, of a shrug, of saying, yep. you've got it, okay. you know what? It's mild enough now that we can cope if you're vaccinated and boosted. So just continue. Keep the restaurants yes, open. Everything keep, mixing, and open. keep going yep. on public transport because if you're vaccinated, you'll handle it. It's mild enough now. If not, not. And, That's where I wonder if we're yeah. heading there.
0: Yeah. And let's let's say this is a risk, right? It's taking a risk, maybe because we don't have any other choice, but it still is a risk. We'll know in about two or three weeks for sure if that risk paid off or not. Um Now, I will want to mention this. You may have noticed Israelis are quite self-involved. But we (laughs) we need to mention this story, the fact that Israel was the first to close down its borders when Omicron was detected. This was six weeks ago, exactly November 26th on Friday. Um, And it closed down its borders. Now, we have to, you know, obviously this podcast is indicative of that. Israel and diaspora have a special relationship. And there are so many families here that are separated by geography. Part of the family lives in Israel. Part of the family lives in uh, diaspora. You have endless cases of weddings and funerals and births. And, you know, Israel can close its borders. It's a legitimate decision by a sovereign state. But if you close down the borders and you still have a Miss Universe pageant going on here, then it doesn't look good. And I chose those words carefully. And if you still, if you have no restrictions on, on Israelis at all, they have New Year's Eve parties, they're doing whatever they want. There, was a 10,000 people, there were 10,000 people in a concert yesterday. And you don't let a mother visit her daughter who's about to give birth for the first time. You don't look good. And, and, and what I'm saying is that Israel, I think, failed in explaining its policy and maybe even apologizing to world diaspora and saying, we're, we're sorry about this. This is what we're doing right now. Please be patient with us. There was no kind of message like that at all. They came across
1: really striking. You say that I hadn't thought about the apology or communication, and isn't it interesting? It suggests that my expectations are so low. I didn't even anticipate there being one. But you're right; there could have been a conversation there, from from both sides, but from Israeli policymakers to say to the Jews of the world that we understand that this is uh, painful and this is a loss. Mm-hmm. And you're absolutely right about every family. It's in my own family. My niece now lives in Israel. Her Her father has not been able to visit since she moved to Israel nearly two years ago. It's just not been able to happen. And there will be so many families where that is the case. Um, And the the worry you have is that this is okay, it's a short-term thing. It's just, you know, everything will get back to normal. What about for those people who are at a formative stage of their life where the relationship with Israel would be ordinarily forged? And what I'm thinking of is obviously those traditional trips that diaspora Jewish kids make when they're 16, uh, yeah. when they've done you know big exams and they have four or five weeks they spend in Israel. That didn't happen in 2020. Um, I think it didn't happen again in 2021. And those you're, they're not going to be 16 again. Those kids and they won't be you know then that that is uh, an experience they will just have missed. Even if they go later on, it won't. Be that kind of bond that is forged, that you know I know was a thing in just the lives of al- almost you know everyone I know, and that's going to be. I just wonder if we may see the legacy of that, feel the legacy of that, in decades to come, where there will be a generation who didn't cement that connection uh, with Israel at that key formative stage of their lives.
0: I, I completely agree, and I think again, look, this is something that. Uh, Israel should have thought of, maybe found some sort of solution. But if you can't find a solution, at least find a way to explain it um, uh, better. You know, you see the um, uh, minister of diaspora, Nachman Shai, writing, you know, it's very urgent to allow for Jewish families to come in, even if the borders are closed. And some of the, and again, I, I, the last person in the world that thinks that Twitter uh, reactions are indicative of, of the whole society, but you see some of the responses to him saying, "Oh, they want to come; they should make aliyah," which is incredibly offensive and simplistic—a way of looking at these things. Right? We have—we're a family, and you—you you know, there is a connection. People who love Israel care about Israel, come and visit Israel. I'm looking at you, Jonathan Friedland. You—you you know, this is important for the relationship. When you have a story um, like the—I don't know if you heard of this at all. And by the way, it didn't make a lot of headlines in Israelis either. It made a lot of headlines in South Africa. But the day they closed the borders, uh, family and friends of Ali Kay, who's uh, Olef from South Africa, who was murdered in a terror attack, came to mourn with his family and they were turned back. They were turned back during Saturday. Some of them were Sabbath observers. And again, no direct explanation. The prime minister could have recorded this sort of video and say, saying, he's sorry. I think it's a, a big problem. And as you say, I think it will resonate for a long time. Uh, And as an Israeli, I I really regret that.
1: That thing you say when you, you know, we're a family, I think it's very, it's a useful way of thinking Sometimes
0: dysfunctional. sometimes. Yeah,
1: no, because the reason why family works is exactly, you don't always, you know, get on uh, easily, but you are bound up with each other's lives. And the, it just reminds me of something which I know that people in diaspora said, in order to explain the connection uh, Jews feel towards Israel, They said this to non-Jews by way of explanation, Mm -hmm. but I now wonder if it would be useful as a thing that Jews say to Israelis, which is, one way of putting it, is Israel is the largest Jewish community in the world. You know, we often don't say that most basic thing because it's a country and a state, but it's also just the largest Jewish community in the world. Jews are a people spread around the world, and if they are cut off from the single biggest Jewish community, that has an effect. Um, you know, love it or hate it, Um, you know, enthusiast or opponent. It's just a living, breathing, you know, organism, and it is a cut off from its, you know, beating heart. And that is just going to have an effect whether or not, as I say, you're a supporter or an opponent. So this is something COVID has done. But I think you're right. Maybe it was unavoidable. I think your point about the inconsistency with, you know, yes to Miss Universe, no to the relative, the mother of the a pregnant daughter i think that's very uh, well made that that point but even if it had to be done that decision explain it talk talk yep. about it and you know one of the things we've talked about here is there isn't really that channel of communication and you know it's partly why we found found ourselves doing this is you know kind of there aren't that many places where jews and israelis uh, and Jews and Israeli Jews are in conversation with each other regularly. But it would have been very good. Maybe that would be one for uh, Isaac Herzog, who we know is an unholy listener, um, president <laughs> of the State of Israel. Maybe that's the sort of thing he could have said from yeah, his Yeah, he platform. tried.
0: He tried. But again, I, I think it was maybe a little too, too little and too late. Uh, in Israel, we say, don't be right, be smart. It's not about being right. It's not even about being smart. Just be kind, I think is the point. And now, in the spirit of being kind, what would you like to talk about?
1: Uh, well, we've talked, we've had you talking about you, so why don't I talk about you? Um, no, okay, it's it's, let's do that. It's, a, it's a bit like that. No, because there was something that interested me, and I'd love to hear more from you on it. And that is this meeting that happened. I know this week, um, uh, Israeli minister, uh, party leader of the Blue and White Party, um, Benny Gantz, was in Jordan for a meeting with King Abdullah. And You know, there's some things to deconstruct there because he's not the foreign minister. And so it's quite interesting that he had that mission. But the bit that interests me is rather earlier, and maybe the two are related, uh, Benny Gantz has had a series of meetings with the Palestinian leader, Mahmoud Abbas, president of the Mm -hmm. Palestinian Authority and of the PLO, chairman of the PLO. Um, They met, I think they even met in Benny Gantz's home. Look, I know this isn't, um, you know, automatically top of the news in Israel all the time, this stuff, and for reasons we might talk about But what is going on there? Because for reasons which we may come on to, I think people outside Israel, perhaps even more than inside, are interested in this.
0: Yeah, well, first of all, it was news in Israel, but more because of politics than because of diplomacy and peace, but I will get to the politics in a minute. Yes, so as you said, Benny Gantz, the security uh, defense minister and head of the Blue and White Party, met with Mahmoud Abbas in his own home, in Benny Gantz's home in Rosh Ain. This has not happened in a decade. The last Israeli politician who had Mahmoud Abbas visit his house is, of course, Benjamin Netanyahu in 2010. Um, So over a decade. They discussed civil matters, right? VIP permits and tax revenues. Bennett, uh, the prime minister, prefers. The issues t- talking about the civic uh, uh, progress to discussing diplomatic uh, progress, but I think what's also interesting here, beside this these conversations that are very important because uh, Israel uh, has an interest in the Palestinian Authority being strong and vibrant, is also the politics. So should I get into the politics, or do you want to talk diplomacy first?
1: Well, just on the diplomacy, um, you know, it doesn't surprise me that in a way it wasn't that big substantively. And I have to say the interest abroad was not particularly great. There. there wasn't much coverage of any of these meetings. That's partly because everyone around the world I think now is in the era of COVID is so inward looking. I think foreign news in general has mm-hmm. had less salience uh, because people have been very fixated on their own affairs. But before the pandemic, you know, when you talked about Israel, the only issue that got coverage really was the Israeli-Palestinian track—that that question, a bit, a bit about Iran, obviously, but that you know is the, seen to be the existential question, and it is why. And again, I know from our conversations, this is not the case inside Israel, but it is why, for example, people around the world—and of course, I'm broadly generalising, there are exceptions—but a lot of world opinion was quite keen to see the back of be Netanyahu because they thought he was an obstacle to dialogue and to peace. And so people who really knew nothing about Naftali Bennett's history and his positions on settlements and so on just thought, oh, good, they've got a new guy there. Maybe there's this, they'll be, and I'm using the phrase deliberately naively, oh, maybe this will restart the peace process. Even though, of course, people who know all about this know there is no peace process and there hasn't been for a long time. But mm. there was this assumption that, oh, if there's a change in government. The A must have thrown Netanyahu out because he's done nothing on the peace process, and now it will restart. Now, that's obviously, you and I know that's very naive, it's not like that, but when there is a bit of movement, it's interesting. And so the fact they were in each other's house, uh, or in Benny Gantz's house, that they had that meeting, at least, you know, is there some hope, even a tiny hope, that at least there is... To use that phrase from peacemaking, a political horizon. There is some form of uh, uh, channel of conversation, even if that political horizon is actually a mirage. Is there some relief at all that at least they're talking?
0: What's the answer you want to hear? <laughs> <laughs> Tell
1: me the truth. I've got, I've got to be. Lie to me,
0: Yoni. Just on. lie to me. Look, um, <laughs> officially, right? This government, the Bennett-Lapid government will not make any um, progress towards a Palestinian state, right? They have their mutual vetoes. Bennett, as long as he's prime minister, won't. Lapid, officially, even when he's prime minister, is not supposed to. But after saying all that, first of all, what is very important for this prime minister is civic progress, is economic progress for the Palestinians. And I will remind you that when we discussed, we talked to Yuval Noah Harari a few episodes back, and remember one of the insights in his book is what usually happens in history is what you least expect. I would say this is somehow still in the horizon. I wouldn't say it's only only a mirage. Uh, Remember also Ben Rhodes saying, "I, I prefer someone on the right who's telling the truth, and then we can have an honest discussion about what the future is, than someone who's hiding his true opinions. I'm not sure I answered your question, but... I will go on to saying something about the politics of what is going on here. What is going on here uh, politically is that Benny Gantz is carving his own niche, right? You said it's not the foreign minister, it's not even the prime minister, it's the defense minister meeting with uh, the head of the uh, Palestinian Authority or or the king of Jordan. And he's trying to sort of wink at the uh, uh, center left in Israel saying, I am... I am the person who will be your Itzhak Rabin, right? That is what he's saying. And the more Bennett is moving to the center, he is trying to get the uh, uh, left part of his coalition. That is also what is going on
1: here. No, I get that completely. And and the idea that, of course, it's politicking, and Gantz's brand, in a way, was to be the Rabin of our time, meaning the general-turned-peacemaker politician. Uh, so I get all that. And uh, nevertheless, I find myself. You've been quoting various Arabic proverbs. I find myself quoting the text of Dumb and Dumber to you, in which Jim Carrey <laughs> tells uh, the love interest, "You know, do you think there's uh, any prospect of you and me getting together?" And she looks at him, and goes, "I would say it was a million to one," and he looks at her and goes, "So you're telling me there's a chance?" <laughs> and that's what I. That's what I feel like. I'm clinging to the optimism. You're, uh, there's you're no quoting optimism Dumb and Dumber. Know.
0: There is no. There's no other peak i can go in this podcast i
1: think we have to we no. have to stop i can i can no, uh, this is um no the best. but while i while i while i'm in the realm of clutching at tiny straws i did also notice this decision by the government of suspending settlement activity in the so-called e1 corridor again that's the sort of thing you probably would not have got a statement to that effect mm-hmm. from the alternative government that was on offer look these are crumbs of comfort for those of us who would like to see uh, these two peoples uh, living side by side, two states side by side. I, I, you know, I'm very ready for people to tell me I'm deluded and uh, this is not going to happen. Indeed, I have on my desk the memoir from Shlomo Ben Ami, who, of course, was uh, Israel's foreign minister, and the book is Prophets Without Honor, but the subtitle is The 2000 Camp David Summit and the End of the two-state solution. So he's saying, it's over, let it go. This book is coming in 2022, but I like your Yuval Noah Harari and Dumb and Dumber point, you never quite know. Um, I think we have we some have awards range. to- We have uh, range.
0: Oh, I just wanted to mention one more thing too, because you, you, I think it helps to understand this political situation that the prime minister is in when you're searching for him yes. to do things like the E1. There is, you know, he- uh, Netanyahu Bennett is under a lot of pressure. Uh, the the Netanyahu supporters pushing him and calling him like the worst, you know, you're a traitor, you stole the elections, etc. Still doing this seven months after he became prime minister. Yesterday he completely lost it in the Knesset. Pictures we have never seen of the prime minister going to the benches of the opposition, yelling at the Likud MKs. Um, this is the situation he is in, and I think it's important to understand when we expect him to do you expect him to do all kinds of of, of different um, things towards peace. This is where he is. And I think we kind of need to also remember that in all of our uh, conversations. But yes, let's indeed dole out awards. Jonathan, would you all like to begin?
1: Just before you, I go on to that, and by the way, I don't expect him, but I'm just I'm just that hope and expectation of very different things. But just t- tell, tell me why he was losing it. What? By the way, I think that feels to me like a sort of rite of passage for Israeli prime ministers. We've all seen Pictures of whether it was Netanyahu or Perez or whatever, you know, shouting at uh, uh, fellow members of the Knesset from the podium. So that feels to me like he's becoming a real prime minister. <laughs> but explain to me um, what what triggered it. Well, what th- what there's an dead.
0: argument about the electricity law. It's a law that uh, ensures illegal structures to be connected to the power grid, and it benefits basically Arab communities. The Likud uh, members of Parliament uh, kind of started yelling at him that it, he's a sh- It's a shame. Uh, and uh, as if they were in an episode of, of Game of Thrones, they kept yelling shame, shame, shame at him. And again, this comes uh, on the uh, coattails of seven months of them of him, of him them calling him a traitor because he became prime minister with uh, six seats. The problem is for them is not that he became prime minister with six seats, but that he became prime minister and that Niao isn't. And they kept, you know, they call him a traitor, they call him a person who stole the elections. He was just, I think, really, he kind of lost it. And he came and he started yelling at, at them. He had to kind of... There were ushers of the Knesset kind of separating in this argument. It was really, I mean, even in the standards of the very chaotic Israeli parliament, that was. those were pictures we haven't seen. So that is that is where he is.
1: So we have some awards to hand out. Chutzpah and Mench is what we do. I'm going to try and hog both here, um, because I think there's one person who could be, a, we've never done this before, a simultaneous uh winner of both at once. And that is uh, the former rabbi for the uh, Chabad community in Poway in San Diego, uh, Rabbi Israel Goldstein. Um, Obviously, Mench, because he was something of a hero when that synagogue uh, came under fire in what turned out to be a deadly shooting in 2019. He was hailed Uh, as something of a hero afterwards and went to the White House and met the president and even spoke at the UN, uh, Rabbi Yisrael Goldstein. Uh, In this week, he has been sentenced to 14 months in prison for tax and wire fraud um, for a whole series of financial uh, crimes, uh, which uh, the judge, presiding judge said, uh, dragged down many congregants Uh, all for his own personal benefit. So he has gone from mensch to really beyond chutzpah uh, in just a matter of a couple of years. Uh, And so he has a claim, Rabbi Yisrael Goldstein, uh, to uh, be a double award winner. (laughs)
0: Um, So I'm going to, you know, you hugged the both, the mensch and chutzpah, but I'm going to give a mensch award anyway, just if I can, you know, if I may. Um, We have to, this week, give a mensch award to um, Betty White who died oh of course cool. I think three weeks less even short of her 100th birthday uh, she was gonna be 100 in uh, J- January 17th such a prolific career such a pillar of American comedy and sitcom as someone who managed to kind of reinvent herself uh, constantly which is very hard to do in Hollywood and with the ageism especially ageism targeted against uh, women um you know I I just think she was an awesome lady and I'm definitely not alone. In this, um, and since we were talking so much about Middle East peace, we have to uh, play this clip that actually Martin Indyk found on Twitter, which is Golden Girls' version of peace in the Middle East, and of course uh, Betty White herself uh, participating in this. Um, let's listen in for a sec.
1: At two in the morning, waiting for George to come home, I called a radio talk show. I gave them the solution to the crisis in the
0: Middle East. <laughs> Giving the Palestinians Greenland? You you were great.
1: <laughs> giving the Palestinians Greenland. It's a big place. Nobody uses it.
0: We do not on this podcast endorse giving the Palestinians Greenland. This was just a joke.
1: We don't. And Martin Indick, I remember, he resurrected this when uh, there was this story about Donald Trump wanting to see if he could buy Greenland. And Indick rather brilliantly suggested maybe this is what um, Donald Trump has in mind. And he cancelled the meeting the with Denver because
0: they didn't, wouldn't sell Greenland to him. Remember that? Good times. That, good times. I mean,
1: it, so um, you sometimes wonder if you just dreamed it. But how brilliant that Betty White was there first um, with that rather, look, which is more likely... You know, you well know Harari's ideas. The thing you don't expect to happen. Which is more likely, my hope, that somehow, you know, the Benny Gantz thing leads to some Middle East uh, talks or the Betty White plan. Uh, <laughs> and, gre- you know, there's is, there is there's as much Till in both. <laughs> but, um, there's TILUL to go round with this, but, the by craziness the way, we, of all of this.
0: Make, can we just make the point that this series was called, in the mid-'80s, The Golden Girls, Three out of the four main characters were playing women in their fifties. This was called the Golden Girls. This would never happen today, at least in that regard. We we kind of advanced as a as a species, don't you think? Wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, oh. well, what would happen today is yeah, that people edu- would say edu- the word edu- "girls" edu- is is demeaning, and we just call it Golden People of a you know. Opposite, but but gender. also
1: the idea they in their fifties they I think they were played as if they were terribly elderly, and I'm not sure. I possibly I'm saying this because I'm in my we
0: which today we just call um, but, it Sex in the City or whatever the main remake is. I can't believe yes, they called it Golden exactly. Girls. Unbelievable. Shame on you. So we have gone,
1: we've gone from Dumb and Dumber to the Golden Girls via Yuval Noah Harari. I've taken you
0: down. I wanted you to become, stop being this British intellectual and start quoting Jim (laughs) Carrey. This is what I wanted to happen.
1: We are nothing if not eclectic on Unholy. If you have enjoyed everything you've heard, uh, do tell your friends give us a review or a rating. Lots of you are doing that, which is all good. Uh, on Instagram, we are at 2Jews. Um, and you, I, I'm, I'm hoping you you are a subscriber. You're neat. If not you, who?
0: <laughs> that would be kind of embarrassing if I wasn't. I will say thank you to Lior Friedman, R.E.P., Rom Atik, head of podcast, Omer Tani Tanirat Eshel for original music. And you and I shall meet next week. Jonathan, let's be optimistic at we, least we about shall, that.
1: We shall, and I look forward to it. Yeah, negative test in hand. See you then.